Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast number six. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is The Admiral of the Ocean Sea, part four. And I'm recording it on January 29th, 2021 from New Orleans. We're on a roll now. The last time we looked at the first voyage of Columbus, from the jumping off to the first contact with the Indians on an island in the Bahamas. This episode, will look at some of the pretty awesome things that Columbus saw as he toured the West Indies in late 1492 and set us up for the voyage home. Let us pick up where we left off with a first contact. It is hard for us to really understand how freaky it must have been for Columbus and his crew on the one hand and the peaceful Indians of Watling's Island on the other. Yes, there'd been other first sightings by Europeans, and stranger and more impressive discoveries, I'm using air quotes here. Africa, for instance, are the far reaches of Asia over land. But those were, as Samuel Eliot Morrison put it, the unfolding of a continent already glimpsed. Trade had exposed Europeans to the mysteries that lay deep in Asia and Africa, even if none living had seen them with their own eyes. The Muslims intermediated trade with the reaches of the Eastern Hemisphere. The bypassing of the Muslim monopoly was the original value proposition of Columbus's venture in the first place. And Europeans had read Marco Polo's story from 200 years before. But this was all new. Quoting Morrison, Every tree, every plant that the Spaniards saw was strange to them. And the natives were not only strange, but completely unexpected, speaking an unknown tongue and resembling no race of which even the most educated of the explorers had read in the tales of travelers from Herodotus to Marco Polo. Never again may mortal men hope to recapture the amazement, the wonder, the delight of those October days in 1492 when the New World gracefully yielded her virginity to the conquering Castilians, close quote. Morrison's virginity metaphor may ring a bit off-key to our modern ears, and no doubt it was a little less weird to read in 1940, and we can still understand the point. The first contact of October 1492 was, in fact, a lot like the imagined first contacts in many a science fiction story. Indeed, the romantic in me hopes Morrison is wrong, and at the right time, humanity does get a new first contact story. Let's take stock. We could devote at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to Columbus. Not only did he spend the next three months exploring the islands of the Caribbean, but he returned to the region for three more voyages, going ashore, on continental South America and in Central America. Most of that is beyond the purpose of this podcast, which is to tell the history of the people who inhabit the lands that are now the United States. So if you are interested in more about Columbus after the first voyage, I again recommend that you read Morrison's biography or one of the others. In this episode, we will now look at a few of the highlights of the first voyage. And in the next episode follow Columbus on his miraculous trip home through to the first communications of Columbus's monumental discovery. And a discovery it was from the point of view of the Spanish and Portuguese who heard about it first. 
we ought to remind ourselves constantly that Columbus was looking for Japan, which was but a stop on the way to the riches of China, or Cathay, as it was sometimes called. These were mysterious lands to even educated Europeans of the late Middle Ages, with only the most fantastical descriptions known, laundered through the writings of Marco Polo and the tales of merchant traders. The islands and the Indians Columbus and his crew were investigating might well have been the eastern outposts of Asia, for all he knew, even if disappointing in their failure to conform with the legends. In the end, the important thing for history was whether Columbus had discovered enough to interest the dual sovereigns, or anybody else, in sponsoring a second voyage. The Indians and the natural beauty of Cuba and Hispaniola would not have been enough, especially without photographs. For that, it took a shipwreck and the discovery of gold. Columbus spent about three months wandering around the islands before leaving for home on January 16, 1493. I will put a map of that momentous first voyage in the notes for this episode on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Or, if you have a decent command of the regional geography or a map app at the ready, in general, the expedition sailed south and west through the Bahamas, eventually running into the coast of Cuba. From there, the caravels worked their way along the coast, west by northwest, until roughly the site of modern-day Cayo Cruz, before backtracking east until they reached the tip of Cuba and crossed to Hispaniola. All sorts of things happened there, and then the expedition began a very difficult journey home. Along the way, Columbus introduced the Indians of the West Indies to molasses, hard as that may be to believe now. It would yet be some years before the Spanish introduced sugarcane and the terrors of the cane plantation. Before the Tainos Indians had tasted molasses, the only sweetener they had was wild honey, and that from bees that weren't so great at making it either. Today's honeybees descend from Asia and transferred to the Americas during the Columbian Exchange. On one trip ashore to reload fresh water from the well, in an Indian village, the expedition discovered hamacas, beds like nets of cotton. Hammocks, which amazingly enough were unknown to Europeans, would transform the life of sailors who had heretofore slept on hard surfaces and rolling seas. Not only was the hammock soft, but it was particularly comfortable in the hold of a sailing ship at sea. The value of the hammock on board was such that in 1940, when Morrison was writing his book, it was only just then going out of use in the United States Navy. The exploration of the northern coast of Cuba, which is actually the Indian name for the island, Columbus christened it Juana after the infant Don Juan, heir to the throne of Castile and Aragon, was largely about the search for gold and finding the Grand Khan of China or the evidence of him. This was quite clearly the wrong place to be looking for the latter. But in the search for gold in Cuba, there was, eventually, pay dirt, just not for Columbus. Columbus would have to get to Hispaniola to find evidence of gold deposits, and that would make all the difference. It was on Cuba that Columbus and his men first encountered perhaps the most economically valuable discovery of their trip so far, tobacco, although they did not appreciate it at the time. 
There will be more to say on this subject when we get to the Jamestown colony in around 150 years, and who knows how many episodes from now. But for now, let's just quote Morrison's paragraph on the matter. The tobacco pipe of the North American Indians was known to the Tainos, who rolled cigars, which is in Cuba today, they called tobaccos. Inserting one end in a nostril, they lit the other from a firebrand and inhaled the smoke twice or thrice, after which the cigar was handed to a friend or allowed to go out. When a party of Tainos went on a journey, small boys were charged to keep one or more firebrands glowing ready for anyone who wanted a light. And by halting every hour or so for a good drag all around, Indians were able to travel great distances. Bartholomew de las Casas, commenting some 40 years after the first voyage, says that the Spaniards of Hispaniola were only then beginning to take up smoking, although, quote, I know not what taste or profit they find in it. Apparently, the bishop never got beyond his first cigar. Within a century of his writing this, the use of tobacco had spread throughout the Western world to men and women alike, despite the opposition of kings and clerics. As a gift from the new world to the old, it proved far more valuable than gold. Close quote. Tobacco is, it must be said, also more lethal than gold, perhaps depending on how one counts deaths from gold and the pursuit of it. Eventually, tobacco would become the most lethal of Montezuma's various revenges, again, depending on how one counts, even if one doesn't stick the cigar directly into the nose. Tobacco in all its dimensions is a fascinating subject. I would imagine more ink has been spilled over it than any other plant. The weed itself is so compelling that it may have been the first American domesticated plant, according to some scholars, predating and possibly enabling the subsequent domestication of maize and other food plants. So, if knowledge gained in the domestication of tobacco facilitated the domestication of maize, which after the Columbian exchange stimulated massive population growth around the world, does that bring tobacco's legacy somewhat back into balance? It may well have done, as long as people mostly chewed on the stuff or smoked pipes and cigars. The industrialization of cigarettes centuries after Columbus probably tipped the scale well to the worse. It's tough to blame cigarettes on either the Indians or Columbus, though. Anyway, the domestication of tobacco seems to have begun in the Andes between 6,000 and 8,000 years ago, although I have also seen it suggested that it originated in the Amazon. Indian agronomists, as it were, bred the progenitor tobacco into such species as Nicotiana rustica and Nicotiana tabacum, which have larger leaves and higher nicotine content than the ancient wild varieties. These domesticated tobaccos spread into Mesoamerica and the Caribbean and reached parts of what is now the southeastern and southwestern United States between 2,500 and 3,500 years ago. On November 22nd, while along the coast of Cuba, the wind shifted. Columbus and the flagship Santa Maria attacked one way and Nina followed. But Martin Alonso Pinzon, who we talked about in earlier episodes, took Pinta on the other tack. The fleet would not reunite until well into January. Why did Pinzon insubordinately take Pinta away from the flagship? 
This question is mired in historical controversy. It became an issue in lengthy litigation in the next century. But Pinzon probably bolted to raise the odds that he would discover a source of gold before Columbus. Pinto was capable of more speed than Santa Maria, so it's also possible that Pinzon simply got bored of shortening sail so the lumbering flagship could keep up. As between boredom and gold fever to explain Pinzon's perfidy, I'm inclined to go with gold fever. A few days later, Santa Maria and Nina spent a week in the harbor of present-day Baracoa, Cuba, on the northern coast well along in the direction of Hispaniola, the island that today is shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Unfavorable winds kept them there, so Columbus did a bit of inland exploring. There Columbus saw some truly immense dugout canoes, one more than 70 feet in length and big enough to hold 150 people. If you dig around, you can read about the unbelievable work involved in making a dugout canoe with only fire and stone scraping tools. The social commitment to build a fleet of huge dugouts must have required strong incentives indeed. Either inter-island trade and migration were important even on a large island such as Cuba, or the canoes were intended for amphibious military operations. Probably both. On December 5th, the wind shifted and Santa Maria and Nina resumed moving southeast along the coast of Cuba, the Indians having suggested, or at least gestured, that there was gold on an island to the east. At this point, we have to wonder what was going through Columbus's mind. He had been wandering around the islands for almost two months, and he'd found no evidence of Japan, China, or anything else described by Marco Polo and other medieval travelers to Asia. He had seen small bits of gold jewelry, but all attempts to learn the source of the gold had failed notwithstanding various inland expeditions and endless alleged direction, some or most of which may have been misdirection, from Indians. Morrison wrote it this way, quote, As he left Cuba and crossed the Windward Passage, Columbus must have wondered how he, in his fumbling Castilian, and with such poor evidence as he had picked up, could convince the sovereigns that this beautiful coastline, along which he had been sailing for five weeks, really belonged to the semi-fabulous Cathay. No Grand Khan, no potentates or mandarins in silk brocade had he encountered, but naked savages with cotton clouts. No towering Chinese junks, but dugout canoes. No teeming cities of a thousand bridges, but villages of palm-thatched huts. Not one grain of gold or other precious metal, but artifacts of wood, bone, and shell. No merchantable spicery, but poor substitutes for cinnamon and pepper. No monsters of humankind or marvels of the vegetable kingdom, but a few odd nuts. We who have benefited from Columbus's voyage can hardly imagine what a disappointment it had been after the first wonder and delight at Watling's Island had worn off. In fact, Columbus, ever the entrepreneur, was already thinking about a pivot. During the week at Baracoa, he wrote a diary entry addressed to the sovereigns that, in effect, admitted the failure to find Asia per se, and yet also optimistically promoted even his so far disappointing discoveries as filled with opportunity. Quoting Columbus, it's certain, Lord Princes, 
that where there are such lands, there should be profitable things without number. But I tarried not in any harbor, because I sought to see as many countries as I could, to give the story of them to your highnesses. And also I knew not the language. And the people of these lands did not understand me, nor I them, nor anyone aboard. And those Indians aboard, I often misunderstood, taking one thing for the opposite, and I don't trust them much, for many times they have tried to escape. But now, please our Lord, I will see the most that I can, and little by little I shall come to understand and know. And I will have this language learned by people of my household, because I see that all so far have one language. And afterwards, the benefits will be known, and it will be attempted to make all these folk Christians, for that will easily be done, since they have no religion, nor are they idolaters. And your highnesses will command a city and fortress to be built in these parts, and these countries converted. And I certify to your highnesses that it seems to me that there could never be under the sun land superior in fertility, in mildness of cold and heat, in abundance of good and pure water, and the rivers are not like those of Guinea, which are all pestilential. For, praise be to our Lord, up to the present among all my people, nobody has even had a headache or taken to his bed through sickness. So may it please God that your highnesses send here learned men who will ascertain the truth of all. And I say that your highnesses ought not to consent that any foreigner do business or set foot here, except Christian Catholics, since this was the end and the beginning of the enterprise, that it should be for the enhancement and glory of the Christian religion, nor should anyone who is not a good Christian come to these parts, close quote. As early as December 1492, Columbus had done two things. First, he'd started to pivot, as any troubled ventured stage startup would do, from the original goal of discovering trade with civilized Asia to the prospect of settling or colonizing the islands that he had found. He still believed that these islands were the eastern outpost of Asia. He would go on in his three subsequent voyages to try to find Cathay still farther to the west. But he certainly saw opportunity in the unforeseen discovery of these islands full of Indians. Second, Columbus was essentially describing the vision of the Spanish enterprise in the New World, at least in its most sanctimonious version. Columbus saw, whether consciously or not, that the Spanish would extend the central problem of the Middle Ages, the conflict between the reach for the divine and the lure of earthly things, into the New World, vacillating between the two for at least the next two and a half centuries. On December 5th, the Santa Maria and Nina reached Hispaniola's western end. The Indians who lived there called it Quizquea, if I'm not botching the pronunciation, which I no doubt am, and began working their way along the northern shore with various stops as they went along. On December 7th, the ships reached Mustique Bay. Your map app will work to locate it. And there were detained by bad weather for five days. On December 12th, Columbus raised a great cross on the western cape of the bay. And for Ferdinand and Isabella, took possession, if such were possible, of Hispaniola. 
Three of Columbus's men explored the valley leading to the bay and spotted a crowd of fleeing natives. They gave chase and captured, quote, a very young and beautiful woman clad only in a gold nose ring. They brought her aboard Santa Maria, where she was able to converse with the other Indians who had tagged along, voluntarily or otherwise, from the Bahamas and Cuba. Columbus loaded her up with trinkets and put her ashore over, allegedly, her objections, she being more than a little impressed with, quote, the men from heaven. No doubt it was best for her that Columbus put her ashore, since a beautiful young naked woman with a gold nose plug was not going to fare well with an all-male gold crazy crew that had been at sea for four months. He had other reasons, though. He hoped she would tell the other Indians to stop running away, which it seems she must have done. An inland expedition encountered a large cluster of Indians who did not run away and instead fed them cassava bread and fish. Here, Morrison is being delicate and satisfied their other wants. No more gold nose plugs, though. It turns out that the released girl was a chief's daughter and decorated accordingly. This would not be the last time an Indian chief's daughter would facilitate communications between Europeans and Indians. By mid-December, Santa Maria and Nina moved still further east and repeated the catch-and-release-with-presence stratagem that had worked as a confidence builder, this time earning a meeting on board with a young chief who seems to have invited the Spanish back to his village, where it so happened the people wore an abundance of gold ornaments. Now, the Indians did not regard gold as particularly valuable, but this chief had quickly figured out that the Spanish thought it was. The Spanish, for their part, probably looked too eager in their desire for gold to get a good deal. Nevertheless, Columbus needed to get proof of gold if he wanted another round of funding. The Spanish, therefore, bargained with this savvy chief for gold leaf, ornaments, and so forth, in sufficient quantities to persuade them that there was a mine fairly nearby. In this way, Columbus moved along the coast of Hispaniola, collecting ever more jewelry and art made with gold, bolstering his case that there was gold in them thar hills. And then he messed up. On Christmas Eve, 1492, after the admiral had retired for the night, the watch on the Santa Maria fell asleep. Here's Morrison's account. Quote, The middle watch was very loath to be routed out, for it had been impossible to sleep aboard on the two previous nights with curious savages swarming all over the flagship. The course to their destination seemed perfectly clear. Nina, as usual, was showing the way, and in the faint light of a setting five-day-old moon, her spars and limp sails could be dimly seen. Yet the moon was too young and too low to reveal any ruffle of white water where the groundswell was breaking lazily on three coral reefs, almost dead ahead. A feeling of complete security, the most fatal delusion that a seaman can entertain, stole like an opiate of the sleepy men aboard Santa Maria. Eleven o'clock, one hour before Christmas. The grommet on duty turns the ampayetta, that's the 30-minute hourglass used for dead reckoning aboard ships in those days, and sings a ditty. 
The pilot scratches on his slate the few miles he reckoned Santa Maria had made in the last four hours. The helm is relieved, and everyone off duty curls up in the steerage or along the bulwarks and soon falls fast asleep. Columbus paces the quarterdeck for a few minutes, exchanges a few inconsequential remarks with the officer of the watch, retires to his cabin, and falls into a deep sleep, his first in over 48 hours. As soon as the old man is out of sight, the lookouts, boys, and other members of the middle watch select soft spots on the deck to indulge in a bit of shut-eye themselves. The officer of the watch paces the quarterdeck a few times, yawning heavily, looks around the horizon and sees no sign of wind, notes Nina leading the way, orders the helmsman to steer by a star and call him if there is any change in wind or weather, and lies below to resume his own sleep. And pretty soon the helmsman, who had dozed off once or twice already, decides he can bear it no longer, kicks awake the grommet whose duty it is to turn the ampayetta, gives him charge of the huge unwieldy teller, which Columbus had forbidden under all circumstances, and curls up to sleep in the steerage. So of 40 men and boys, not counting Indian captives aboard the flagship, nobody was awake but one little grommet. Nino was invisible to him. He could see nothing. The creaking of the great rudder in its gudgeons and the groans and squeaks and slats and rattles that any sailing ship makes in a calm shut out the sound of surf from his ears. Well, you can see where this is going. Just as the sand in the Ampayetta ran out for the second time that watch, indicating that Christmas Day had begun, Santa Maria slid onto a shelving coral reef in Carousel Bay so gently that nobody was awakened. Oops. This being one of history's more consequential shipwrecks, we could spend a lot of time exploring the ins and outs and what have yous. For our purposes, the most important outcomes are one, the Santa Maria turned out to be unsalvageable. Two, Columbus sought and obtained the assistance of the local Indian chief, who turned out to be a great guy with a lot of men, canoes, and gold that he was willing to trade. Three, the friendly chief's Indians helped unload the Santa Maria's cargo scrupulously, with not so much as a lace point or a nail missing. And four, the Pinta still AWOL, there were far too many men to cram onto Little Nina, which had a crew of only 22. So some of the Spanish would need to stay behind and hope for a rescue on a future voyage. Before the wreck, Columbus had no plan to establish a settlement because he needed all his men to crew his ships. Now it made all the sense in the world. Columbus picked 39 men who were in the main delighted to stay behind and perhaps to be the first to discover gold on the ground, in order that Santa Maria's wreckage be used to build a tower and fortress. He named the settlement La Navidad, in honor of the day of disaster that gave rise to the first European toehold in the New World. Columbus left Santa Maria's boat with a garrison, hoping that they could use it to explore the coast to find perhaps a better location for a permanent settlement. And, of course, the gold mine. On the 27th of December, some Indians arrived with news that Pinta was anchored at the mouth of a river two days' sail to the east. 
Columbus wrote a letter to Martin Alonso Pinzon asking, beseeching really, that he sailed back to join with Nina and dispatched a messenger in a canoe with an Indian crew to deliver it. The canoe turned back before it reached Pinta. So Martin Alonso never got the letter. On January 2nd, Columbus and the helpful chief, one Guacanagari, had a farewell feast. Columbus, of course, knew that the fate of the crew left behind would depend on Guacacanari's goodwill. January 3rd, 1493, had unfavorable winds, but Nina was able to head out at dawn on January 4th. Columbus intended to head to Spain as fast as he could, lest Martin Alonso and the Pinta get there first and, as we say today, shape the narrative to his advantage. Two days along, fighting headwinds along the coast of Hispaniola, Columbus sent a seaman aloft to look for reefs. Instead, he spotted the Pinta barreling along downwind toward Nina. The two caravels rendezvoused, and Martin Alonso came aboard the flagship full of stories about how he had no choice but to tack away off Cuba six weeks before and all that. Columbus did not believe these stories, but he was nothing if not practical and knew they needed each other for the challenging trip home. So he went along with at least a temporary burying of the hatchet. Pinta had, in fact, gone on her own to look for gold, failing in a couple of stops before anchoring in what is today Puerto Blanco in the Dominican Republic. There, Martin Alonso and his crew stayed three weeks exploring upcountry, the event bringing back a lot of gold, relatively speaking, from the Yak River Valley, where there was known to be substantial alluvial gold even in the 20th century. This was where the Spanish found their first geological gold in the New World. So Columbus now had two bases to argue for a second voyage. The resupply or relief of the settlement at La Navidad and definitive evidence of gold in the ground. That would be enough to justify what became a massive 17-ship second voyage. We will not go through the second voyage on this podcast series, since with the return to Spain and the revelation of the discovery in the next episode, we will have laid sufficient groundwork for the settling of North America. However, I do not want to leave you twisting in the wind over the fate of La Navidad. Everybody died. This would not be the last time in the European settlement of the Americas when everybody would die. But the story of La Navidad is particularly sordid. Columbus got back there almost exactly 11 months after the wreck of the Santa Maria on November 23, 1493, and found nothing but a few ruins. Columbus reconnected with a friendly and helpful chief, Guacanagari, and with the benefit of improving translation on both sides, managed to reconstruct what had happened. Rather than reinvent the wheel on this, I'll quote a somewhat edited version of Morrison's account. The Navidad garrison had not long been left to their own devices when the men began to quarrel over women and gold. Rodrigo de Escobedo, the secretary, and Pedro Gutierrez, the royal butler, killed Yacom the Genoese grommet and made up a gang that roved the island in search of more gold and women. On their travels, they encountered Keanabo, the stout chief of the Maguana, one of the five tribal groups on Hispaniola before the Spanish arrived, said to have been of Carib stock, would stand for no nonsense in his territory. 
He put the Gutierrez gang to death and promptly descended on La Navidad with a strong force to wipe out the source of trouble. In the meantime, most of the other Spaniards had split up into predatory gangs, and only 10 men were left under Diego de Harana to guard the fort. They were residing in huts with five women apiece and no sufficient guard. Keonabo attacked them at night, killed three, and chased the rest on, into the sea, where they were drowned. The others, wandering about the interior, were killed off by the Indians, whom they had robbed or otherwise wronged. Close quote. Guacanagari, for his part, had tried to help Diego de Harana, and his men had spear wounds to show for it. But the Spanish predation had, not surprisingly, turned most of the Indian leaders in the region lethally against La Navidad. Morrison concludes that, quote, we may be certain that Navidad would have been unmolested as long as the Spaniards behaved themselves. Well, maybe. But the idea that 15th century rank-and-file sailors would behave themselves is, maybe, unrealistic. These people were not the sort to industriously build houses and sow crops, even if they did have five women apiece. Well, that's it for now. Next time, we will conclude our series on Columbus with his voyage home and the spreading of the news of the discovery. After that, we will do a brief overview of the Columbian Exchange and then finally arrive back in North America with the first European attempts to explore and settle the lands that now constitute the United States. Thank you very much for listening. We now have organic returning listeners, people I do not know in real life from such places as France and India, which is very gratifying. And as always, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. <laughs>